Good afternoon, and welcome to Analyzing Multi-Factor Authentication as a Solution to Your Security Challenges, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Improvada. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send your questions or comments in as they occur to you in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. We're also going to do a little one-question poll and get your reaction to that. A nice way to view the screen, click on the top center, get it into side-by-side mode, then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Steve Dunkel. CISO with Geisinger Health System, Mitch Parker, CISO with the Indiana Indiana University Health, Art Ream, Senior Director of IT Applications and CISO with the Cambridge Health Alliance, and Dr. Sean Kelly, Chief Medical Officer with Improvada. And then we will have our Q&A. So we got a lot to talk about and a great panel today, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, Steve, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. I'm Steve Dunkel. I'm Chief Information Security Officer at uh, Geisinger. Uh, We're a fully integrated health system based in Danville, Pennsylvania, which is in the center part of the state. Uh, As part of that, we have a school of medicine, we have the health plan, a fairly large research arm, and of course, the clinical operations side. Very good. Thanks, Steve. Mitch? Hi, I'm Mitch Parker. I'm the Information Security Officer for Indiana University Health. We are the largest health system in Indiana and have a strong partnership with Indiana University School of Medicine and have done a lot of work collaborating with them. Very good. Thank you, Mitch. Art? Yep. My name is Art Ream. I'm the uh, CISO for Cambridge Health Alliance and the Cambridge Public Health Commission in the city of Cambridge. Uh, three hospital, acute care hospital system, and a 15 clinic uh, primary care behavioral health uh, service population in the greater Boston area. Um, like I said, uh, I am the CISO record for the health plan, uh, similar to Steve. Um, we have the clinics and the hospitals. Um, we are a safety net hospital, which means we take care of the indigent care population in the local communities as well as a really large, significant behavioral health inpatient, outpatient population. And uh, we're basically a community-based healthcare system uh, in the greater Boston area. Very good, Art. Sean? Thanks, Anthony. Uh, I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Improvada. I've been there close to 10 years now, and I work with the likes of Art, Steve, Mitch on the IS side at our hospital systems, as well as with clinical leadership to bridge the gap between IT and IS and uh, clinical on the provider side. And we try very hard at Improvada to create solutions in digital identity that actually make the right thing to do and the safe thing to do and compliant thing easier and better and more usable. Um, So that's my job. I'm also happen to be uh, an emergency medicine physician in Boston at Beth Israel Leahy. Very good, thank you, Sean. All right, Uh, let's frame up the issue. Uh, First, let's talk about physician workflow. Physicians 
understand the importance of security, but won't tolerate being excessively slowed down or repeatedly interrupted. Security professionals understand the need for physician efficiency, but have certain standards that must be met. Is that how you see the dynamic? Mitch? That's absolutely how I see it, because we have to be respectful of that workflow. Because if you're not, what ends up happening is physicians will find ways to bypass your workflow, and they will also ignore you for any other initiative you may try to do. So we look at that as not only the dynamic for workflow, but also for integrating with applications. We don't want to interrupt people too much, and we want to make sure we do strike that efficient balance. And as I like to put it, the first time I presented about two-factor authentication to a group of clinical chairs five years ago, I came right out and said, we're not going to mess this up like another health system did, because when it messed up, it was so fresh in the minds years after it happened that it was like burned in their memories and they didn't want to relive that. Very good. Very good. Art? Yeah, I, I agree uh, with Mitch and probably the entire panel. I mean, when we start to think about the physicians or the providers that are moving around our facilities uh, and outside of our facilities, um, some of our challenges, which is what the, the, the security and the systems group has done at Cambridge is what we call doctor walks. So they take a representative device, laptop, or, or an iPhone or, or Android, and they start walking around the different facilities, walking out the facilities and see what the transitions are for, for their workflows. And, you know, they get pinged to do an order. They might have to transition over to their, you know, their mobile device. Uh, and trying to make that seamless, it's not always successful. I mean, there's challenges inside and outside and through facilities, and you're bouncing back and forth. But um, to try to get it to a seamless um uh, you know, point in time for them as they transition between multiple devices, I think is a challenge, but actually something that we can meet and, and, and serve up the security at the same time. And, and we need to do that because they don't often have enough time um, to play around with figuring something out. And, and I'm sure that our counterparts here on here understand that, you know, nine times out of 10, it's not option to call the help desk. Um, because they want somebody to answer immediately and, and walk them through that. And some uh, we have services that do that, but they just don't even have the time to do that at that point in time. And then they're frustrated because they need to move on to something else. Very good, Sean. Yeah, of course, I would agree. And I'm, I'm glad um, that you guys mentioned it's it's not just the doctors. Uh, it's the nurses, the staff. There's a, there's a ton of other staff that are crucial to the operations and, and patient flow and patient care. So it's really all the users um, throughout the healthcare system and getting on and off of the digital um, workplace really is essential to how we do our jobs. And I know a lot of people understand the time element, like, you know, if you're wasting time trying to log on or log off, that's obviously a big deal. But to any clinician out there, you know, the worst part is actually interrupting the thought process because you're already three or four problems deep. You're usually already a couple inter interruptions in and granted, my workflow is a little more complicated and worse than some others because I work in the ER. But nevertheless, for the most part, clinicians are already pretty occupied in their kind of their, their mind space and the RAM. So to knock them off their clinical thought process and block them out due to security reasons really is unacceptable for patient safety and care reasons, as well as satisfaction. And, you know, Art and I have spoken together on burnout. Um, burnout's a real issue. Um, it was an issue before COVID. 
it's even worse now. So we talk about provider satisfaction, but it's really like survival <laughs> and the ability to deliver life and death care. And not to be too melodramatic, but you know, a super secure system that doesn't allow you in uh, doesn't do anyone any favors. But at the same time, we recognize that you have to protect the patients and the doctors and the nurses and everyone in healthcare because you know, while the pandemic has brought out the best of the best, it's bringing out the worst of the worst. Um, we see cyber security issues and cyber crime way up. We've had, you know, customers that we've had in, you know, in recent past that have been um, down on their EHR for over a month due to, um, you know, ransomware. And you guys are well aware of this. So thank you for what you do. But more importantly, thank you when you are able to create a system that's secure, but also allows me to just access my place of work and think about patients rather than security. That's the key. Sean, I want to stick with you for a second. Um, I think Art mentioned the help desk um, and how nine times out of 10, that's not an option. I mean, I would imagine it's almost inconceivable for you to imagine calling the help desk during a shift. I've tried. Um, you really, you just can't, you just can't do it. And um, if you've ever just put yourself, you know, we were joking before this started about a visit to the ER and how bad it can be for patients and family. Think about yourself in front of me at a nursing station, you and five other families just waiting for care to be delivered. And I'm already backed up and behind. It's already overcrowded. COVID is happening. There's PPE on it. You can't even hear each other through yeah. an N95 mask and a face shield. Um, you know, you're barely allowed to talk to each other anymore. Um, now put a computer in there that's not working. And I'm already, you know, dealing with patients who have an increased length of stay. There's overcrowding. Um, the scenario is just tough, right? Um, people have a hard time getting access to care anywhere due to all sorts of non-technical issues. So you throw a technical issue in there and I, I, I want to make it better. I want to make sure that computer's working, but it's just sitting there spinning and I can't access it the very last thing I can do is get on a phone and call a help desk and say, well, can, you know, what computer you're on? And I don't know, let me, let me look around the back and try to find that. And, you know, it, it just, it, it's almost, I'd, I'd say it's comical, except it's like horrendous. Right. And mm. you know, these guys on the phone are all very good. So, so they get it. Um, IT gets frustrated though, because we might have a machine or several machines not working for weeks at a time. Um, and nobody calls in about it because you just can't at the time you mean to do it after your shift. Um, but you never do. And so, you know, those that are proactive and have that kind of at the elbow support and do walk rounds. And I know all the guys on this call do that. Many places don't. But to those of you that do, it's priceless because they walk the floors and they see this machine's not being used. They ask people, you know, offline and take care of it. Got to be proactive about those issues. Steve, that sounds right to me. I mean, we've all had difficulties with a number, anything, technology, whatever, where as a customer, you're like, you know, I don't want to do a survey or I don't want to call in. I just want it to work. So I want you guys to figure out it's not working, not that you depend on me. So, you know, Sean makes a point about getting out there. Um, but, you know, your thoughts there or the question on the screen, whatever you want to address. Yeah, I agree with everyone. And I think I often get asked, what's the key part of being a CISO? What's the skill set or desired trait? And my response is always a sense of urgency. And then the second is being 
relentless about usability uh, because I can certainly appreciate I'm a very impatient person. Uh, if I am doing my job and I get hit with multiple passwords, believe me, I get it. Nothing frustrates me more. Uh, add the dynamic of caring for a patient on top of that. I give the providers a lot of credit because I'm not sure how I'd cope with that. And so when individuals come to me and they're very upset, trust me, I get it. Part of security, a big part of it has to be usability. Otherwise, in my opinion, it's worthless. That's such I a mean, good point. I mean, to Steve's point there, I mean, you know, when we start to think about the, <clears throat> the security, you know, and the multi-factor that we turn out to them, you know, the, the regulatory industry doesn't necessarily help us half the time. Um, but having, you know, I've heard more often than not when we do transitions from, you know, the tokenization from, you know, one vendor to the other, which we're, we're in the process of working through right now, there's an interim state in there where they've got two, you know, two tokens, one soft, uh, two soft tokens on their, you know, their iPhone, and then they get confused which one to use when we're trying to get to the other side. Now we're tying all of this functionality, both multi-factor authentication to applications, to EHRs, to electronic e-prescribing workflows and all of that. And then and they get in the middle of this workflow to what Sean said, and you end up with, you end up with what what damn token do I need to use now to sign this, you know, narcotic script? Is it the is the blue token? Is it the yellow token? Is it the red token? Or, you know, until you get to that final transition. So that that's the complication that Steve is talking about and the impact that Sean is talking about. And, you know, um, making that ease of use is, is really important. It's a big challenge just because of multiple platforms that require different types of technology. And then you get those users that, you know, are, you know, hell bent on, you know, making sure that they have a hard token. And then, you know, you got this thing floating around out there and cause they don't want their phone in the, in the room with them. Um, specifically with COVID, you know. Mitch. Absolutely. Usability for us is number one. And for our primary two-factor authentication system, usability was the primary factor. We did something different. We did a complete communications plan with our medical staff spearheaded by our, at the time, three CMIOs. And we talked to everybody at the senior leadership level on down and made sure they understood what we were doing. And a major portion of our communication plan focused around having one two-factor authentication app if you're an IU doctor, that so you can check your benefits, log on to the network remotely and access applications because we were trying to drive efficiency and also reduce confusion and also it helped that we were replacing a system that was not intuitive. So when you showed people how intuitive it was, and I will tell you the deciding, the thing that got us over the edge with our doctors was our old CMIO used, CMIO used to run a podcast. He installed the application and used the Apple Watch component within 30 seconds on a live podcast in front of 200 members of our medical staff. And that is what sold our user community. We focus on usability 
and we focus on our process relentlessly because ultimately we're not going to be there to help the customers when they need it the most because that's just human nature. We're not always going to be there. So we have to make sure we have the structures and support system in place to let us support them in a way that they can get enough of it working themselves so you don't have that proverbial computer collecting dust in the corner. And we really do try and avoid that as well. But again, if you don't make it usable, if you don't communicate well, and you don't show the advantages of it and are not able to articulate it in 30 seconds to that senior vice president who could say no and torch your entire initiative, then you're not doing it right. Yeah, and they leave, you know, they leave technology on the desktop on the desk. And I and, and much to everybody who's mentioned this already here is you'll do an upgrade to your EHR and they'll say, they'll call in and say, you know, PC XYZ or tablet XYZ is not working. Well, when did it start working? Well, it's never worked in the last three months. We just haven't called. I mean, the de- the desktop didn't work. It's not been upgraded. I mean, or something's not, we didn't call to replace the keyboard because we didn't have time. And that's one of the things that I've, I've tried to advocate to our tech services group is that they should be out on the floors doing rounds and, you know, go, go to the nurse's station and just stop in and talk. I mean, they're not scary people. Well, they are actually occasionally. Um, <laughs> stop in there you know i mean you get an icu or an ed doc they're slightly impatient at certain points in time you got to choose the right time to walk in there but you know and and, but they're also i have to say also that type or that area is more conducive to saying hey i got this new technology i want to put it on these two pcs down here can you just test it because you know you're going to get the litmus test in those busy areas where things need to move faster and they're more often able to and receptive to taking that change and going, this is not working, that's not working, even if it disrupts their day for a little bit. So they'll take on that challenge. But, you know, doing the walk arounds, you know, you know, on a periodic basis to the units to find out what is not working, telephone headset, who knows, you know, they unplug and plug things in all day long, most of the time. Sean, what's the best way to explain to physicians about uh, regulatory issues and compliance issues. So what, what I'm thinking of is, you know, hey, Mr. Physician, Mrs. Physician, we have to do this. Now, we can try and make it as easy as possible, but you can't just argue back to me that you don't want to do this at all because legally or technically, we can't do that. We have to get this functionality done. So there are regulatory issues. There are compliance issues, things you have to do. What's the best way to have that conversation? Straight talk. I mean, we get it. Doctors and nurses are fully cognizant of this. We deal with it all the time. That's part of our burnout and frustration. So the Joint Commission, ACGME, um, you know, billing and compliance issues all the time, all the time. This is just another version of that. It's cybersecurity, it's privacy, it's HIPAA, whatever it might be, DEA, regulations. It's important just to lay it out and say, look, here are the regulations. You know, for EPCS, you need to be credentialed properly. You need to have two factors and there needs to be an audit trail. The rest of the stuff behind the scenes we'll take care of, but that's the bad news. <laughs> the good news is we're doing our best to make it as easy as possible. Here's how we're doing that. So here's the reality. Here's how we mitigate that. Now, what's your opinion and how can I help? Like that takes 30 seconds. It really does. And again, 
this group on the line, I know they're doing that because we do it with them, but many places don't. Many places it's a muddled story. You know, they, they, you know you're kind of blaming the bad news on the, the messenger and it's not communicated well. It has to be concise because again, while we're caring for patients, particularly we don't have a lot of time to go through this, but each one of the people on this call leverages their clinical leadership, the CMIO, the CNIO, CCIO, chief digital officers, physician and nursing champions to help translate that to say, look, DEA says this, that we're used to that, right? Joint commission says this, we know that. And here's what our team in IS and IT is trying to do to give you the most usable solution possible to have the best of both worlds. Mitch, I, uh, you know, I personally am very sensitive to time. Uh, wasting time, uh, very intolerant of that kind of thing. And from what Sean's saying, and a lot of the conversation here, um, time is, is such a key factor for security professionals to have in mind when they're dealing with clinicians. They have no time. If they give you any time, you better use it wisely. Is this important? Do you think of it that way in terms of time? Absolutely, I do. And I look at it, that's why I talk about the 30-second rule. Time to us is absolutely critical. I mean, I will tell you, when our last CMIO came here, he emphasized transaction time on the EMR and getting that down. Because when you take a look at time and you take a look at how many more patients you can care for, how much more you can do, all those little minutes and seconds add up. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's a certain very nice woman in Wisconsin who has a very huge company because that's <laughs> what her company focuses on. So yes, we focus on time because again, when you have that delay, that's more than a second. That's a second more than your customer is going to tolerate. And you cannot tolerate that in an emergency room. And I've been through doing those timing tests with doctors. So any solution you put in there, if you add too many seconds, it's not a viable solution, period. And Steve, when, when we talk about time, we're talking about, yeah, the time that it takes to refresh the screen on a computer, but it's every element of your encounters with clinicians. It's when you have uh, boards and committees where you're trying to get feedback from them, it's being sensitive to every second they devote to investing in making sure the technology works. And it's just not wasting their time. It's being efficient in meetings. It's being efficient with committees. It's not taking 20 minutes when you could take 10. It's just everything. And I'm going to get Sean to weigh in on this because I think it's important. But how much do you think about time in this kind of stuff? Well, Sean brought a good point up earlier. Uh, it's in my mind, yeah, time is critical. You know, I look at a lot of things because of my background. I look at things from a business perspective. Time is money. And, but in my thoughts, too, when he talked usability, a big part of it, and this gets to Sean's point, is not disrupting flow of thought. And I think, at least for me and individuals I've worked with and talked with, that's probably as critical as time is I, I'm thinking about something, I'm on track, and then I've got to deal with this goofy password reset thing. And then it, it 
just kind of throws a wrench in the works. So disruption of thought is another part we try very hard to to be sensitive to that. Art? Yeah, I mean, when you uh, when you really the time factor is definitely, you know, uh, as, as Steve said in, in there, generally speaking, and you really need to pay attention to all of that for, for your individual constituents out there. They get, you know, they get antsy, they get upset, they're not happy with that. Um, and, and to his comment, paying attention to those particular areas is really very important. All right, very good. Let's get uh, a little more, a little deeper into the multi-factor authentication. Uh, Mitch, yeah, just move, go ahead, before, Sean. We, before we head off there, I think um, one yeah. final point on that. Um, it is time. It is um, the lack of cognitive disruption. Um, and it's that flow um, to really allow providers to do, to operate at the top of their license. You want to avoid clerical work. Like, like providers, nurses, doctors, we don't care about working hard, but it, we want to do it on patient care, not clicking and searching for things or even typing in passwords. So like, and even if you have to sacrifice a little time for security, as long as they don't have to focus on that and I can keep thinking about a patient problem, then you've done your job, right? So an example is tapping a badge instead of typing a password. If I can just, I know that the badge tap is here. I literally come in and I'm looking at the patient the care process has started. There's empathy, there's connection, there's human contact. I tap and it's taking care of in the background. It's filling in a password, it's logging me in, it's booting up, whatever it needs to do. But I'm not actively distracted by that. Same thing with biometrics, right? With its facial or voice or, you know, um, whatever fingerprint. A lot of these things, if you, if you bring technology to work for you instead of against you, let the providers work hard on patient care, not searching for where do I put my password in or how do I click here? And so, you know, just as far as breaking down the elements of usability versus security, it shouldn't be you have to sacrifice one for the other. You should have good technology partners that work with you to actually enhance both at the same time. And that's the real victory. Continue. So, so so you don't want to be digging in your pocket with your handful of colored tokens trying to figure out which one. Right, Art? No, no. <laughs> you know, so, you know, the funny thing about it is, is, you know, you're digging, if, if some of them have hard tokens, some of them have two soft tokens, but some of them even have two phones. And, you know, the, and it's all in their pocket trying to grab all this stuff. And then you've got multi-factor stuff out there, you know, trying to figure out which one to plug the number in, you know, if it's, if it's oh, bad, God. you know, and it just goes nutty. All right, Mitch, let's start with you. Let's talk a little, let's get into the multi-factor authentication a little deeper. I want to combine some of these questions. So what role can multi-factor authentication play in accomplishing this? Um, do you see it as one-size-fits-all, uh, and what are some differentiators and advice around implementation and optimization? So the, the whole thing, general thoughts on it, and maybe some best practices that you've seen successful in rollout, things like that? So I think the biggest advantage to, to multi-factor authentication has been with the shift to remote access. Even if you have a lot of physicians that are working on site, you have a lot that are working off site now. 
And when you had EMRs come out, I will tell you, I watched when I did an EMR rollout at my last job, the remote access requests spiked as they were rolling out the EMR department by departments. So securing remote access is paramount, especially with the huge amount of phishing emails and spear phishing attacks that a lot of physicians receive. So having that good protection mechanism there for the eventuality that at least one member of your medical staff will be hit by a spear phishing attack and give up that password, and you want to make sure they don't leverage your email network to send 140,000 spam emails, yes, that's your advantage. Securing remote access, that's your advantage there because you have a lot of doctors that are now working from home. They're now even seeing patients from home, and you want to make sure you secure that. So the best, the, the advantage you have there is being able to secure that flow and deal with the eventuality that someday somebody who's very prominent is going to give up their password, whether you like it or not. If a, it, and there's something interesting, a list of CEOs and C-suite executives from companies out there whose Microsoft credentials have been compromised. That's floating around the internet now. And you want to make sure those credentials are useless should that happen because, again, you're dealing with an eventuality. Data breaches happen. You have to have something guard against that. Or if you're dealing with DEA, you have to make sure that that person who signed for the narcotic is who they say they are and have a good proofing process and an inalienable way of showing this person, yeah, they're the one that signed for it. So again, you, everything's in having a good process to make sure that you secure your network to make sure these people are who they say they are so they can continue to log in and be able to do their jobs with a minimum of interference. And there are a lot of gotchas, but the implementation you have to overly communicate with everybody about what you're doing and why and be able to quickly answer questions. You have to be able to show the value in what you're doing and make sure people really understand it. And also make sure that you work with a good user community to test all your applications and not just people are going to look at it and go, yeah, it works. Get really good involved people. Fortunately for our organization, we have two really good CMIOs and Dr. Weber and Dr. Schaefer who got heavily involved with us with our implementation of multi-factor authentication. You need to make sure you have that and you always have to have that good physician champion. If you don't have the physician champion, you don't have the physician champion that's willing to tell you like it is, then you're not going to succeed. And also, when you want to go to bat with your chief medical officer, that chief medical officer is not going to make a move until the people they think are more credible than you say it's okay to make that move. And ultimately, they're going to look at their physician champions as the decisioning point to say yes or no. So again, ultimately, you have to show the value of it. There is a threat out there, communicate that threat, but make sure when you do it, you show the benefits of doing it 
and make sure you put something in place that actually makes sense that your physician champions like, because if they don't like it, you're not going anywhere, no matter how many federal laws they say you're going to break. Very good. Steve? I think, and listening to Mitch, he brings up some good points. A uh, couple thoughts. I agree 100% that multi-factor, you know, the end game is truly to verify identity the best way possible. And I would much rather do a very good job of verifying identity up front than hitting someone with multiple password re-entries every 15 minutes or whatever. Uh, that, that, that to me doesn't make sense. So MFA brings that in uh, from a more stronger authentication perspective. The other part in thinking about this with multi-factor, if you look at all the factors that we commonly know for authentication, I would probably argue that something you know, conveying that is probably the most intrusive. Because if it's something you are, facial recognition, that seems pretty straightforward. Something you have, a token, more of a pain, but better than entering a password. And then you could argue location, relative location, uh, systematically seems easier. But something about this something you know piece in my mind, whenever you use that factor, it's going to be more intrusive. Very good. Art? Yeah, I mean, during the multi-factor authentication process that, you know, we implement or, or move out, it's like I said, everybody said on here, it's got to be simple. But some of the gotchas that I've actually thought about or actually encountered, you know, particularly with COVID is some of those manual processes we're not even think about. You know, we can get them to the applications, but all of a sudden there's some section 12 form for involuntary admission to, you know, the police to go pick somebody up. And where is that form? Well, it's on the desktop. Well, now you're into something. How do I print this? I'm sitting at home, electronically sign this thing. So it starts, you know, it's great to serve it up, but then you serve up everything you think you've served up. And then there's all these gotchas. How do I get to this application? I need to get to this. I need to get to that. And that's, I think in healthcare largely, because we have so many applications, particularly outside of the EHR that, and manual processes we don't necessarily think through. Um, those are some of the gotchas. We can, we can get you safely, securely to a spot we think you should be. And then there's 15 other things you need when you're there. And we we haven't got you there yet, and and that's that's a source of disruption, you know, as Sean said, in the course of the day. So thinking about the architecture with the multi-factor and what you can get them to is important. Very good, Sean. Uh, agree, of course, and it, it is always fun to listen to CISOs that really do uh, walk the walk as well as talk the talk because they bring up. We talked about clinical workflows at the beginning and how it's all about clinical workflows. There are a lot of CISOs that, that just pay lip service to that, but don't actually go deep and understand some of these things like that paper form that Art was just talking about and the dozens of other workflows that only come up once you start chasing them down and you interact with your CMIOs and, and your CNIOs and others. Um, and you do have to chase them down because they seem like edge cases until you realize, like Art you know, said in the beginning, is a huge community and behavioral health population. And quite frankly, if you're the ER doctor and you can't sign a section 12 and that person tries to leave, what do I do? 
like, like put yourself in my position. I have to print that paper and sign it out somehow. Um, so you have to get me there. And if I, if I'm going to do it insecurely, I'm going to have to do that. So that's not in anyone's best interest. And, you know, there are dozens of cases like that, and there's no way to chase them down except to chase them down. And then you work with your ecosystem partners and your strategic vendor partners to figure out, well, how do we do this? Right. Is it, you know, how do we, how do we mark this up and, and, and do the blocking and tackling here? Is it, is it the on-prem stuff? Is it the, the web SSO we need to get to? Is this, you know, how do we do this um, working with different partners and the devil's in the details there sometimes, but I do think that the way it all starts is, you know, we see most major enterprise healthcare systems picking a few strategic partners on digital identity and working the problem from there and consolidating as much as problem as much as possible together to work on these factors. And I do like the idea, as Steve said, that, you know, there's something, you know, is can be particularly intrusive um, it's interesting, though, um, that like consumerism has paved the way somewhat for healthcare. I think most people are now getting used to two-factor authentication because we have to do it for our banks and for our credit cards and for a lot of other things. Um, and, and so that's part of the good news is there is some consumer technology that's conditioning our market so that you have to spend less time explaining to doctors and nurses why you have to do two-factor authentication. We just now can spend the time to make it actually better, which is what Steve and Mitch and Art were saying is, hey, if you can use a biometric in certain cases, or you can combine even two things, right? You know a trusted device. Now you can loosen things up and you know they're always accessing from this laptop and you can become adaptive. And that's where you really start to make improvements for the end users. All right. Very good. We're going to throw out our, our audience poll and we'll get people and our, our panelists can answer as well. <clears throat> Agree or disagree. The majority of physicians accept that multi-factor authentication is a necessary security measure. What do we think? What do we think Sean's buddies feel about this kind of thing? Sean could speak for all physicians, right, Sean? So we will, uh, that's how I roll, Anthony. That's right. That's right. That's right. Very good. All right. So go ahead and answer that. Um, and I am going to talk a little bit. Let's talk about the future of MFA. Um, what's, the few, what's the next improvement? Sean, do you have any thoughts on this, on, on what you see as um, the next iteration, uh, the next thing people want. I'm sure you've got customers that ask for different things and things you're working on to improve the product. What's next? Uh, I think people are very interested in passwordless. Um, so whether that's a combination of biometrics um, and or FIDO or some other device-based uh, mechanism, I get way over my head technically and I'll let these guys address some of those, uh, the pathways to that. But I think there's a strong desire from the end user clinical community to say, look, if I'm doing something a bunch of times and I'm doing it from a certain device or, you know, with my face, can you leverage some of that and not bother me if it fits a pattern that's reasonable? If it's aberrant behavior or there's high risk behavior or high risk access to something, then ratchet it up. But on use cases that you're used to that are expected, can we adapt to that and make it easier for me to get in and out? without sacrificing the security. So I think it's an open question and I'll leave it to these guys as far as how achievable. So Mitch, we're almost at the holidays, Christmas and uh, other holidays. What would your request be if you could have anything you wanted in this particular technology? 
any type of advancement. I'd like to see the two-factor authentication tokens integrate with other types of technology like building management. I once had a customer of mine who was an emergency room physician whip out his keychain and show me how many different RFID badges he had for all the locks he had to enter at the particular hospital he was in. This was literally, the it could be used as a weapon. That's how large it was. So if there's a way to integrate two-factor in with other systems like building management or even a request we've gotten integrated in with our payment systems, because what's happening, it's not just a two-factor authentication token. It's the fact that I have doctors that have to remember this badge to get into this door, this badge to pay for my lunch, this badge to do this. And we talk about distractions. If you want to have an easy win, integrate your two-factor authentication that you're doing touch that you're doing touchless with with passwordless and have it so it can also do your doors, also have it so it can be used as a payment token for your hospital cafeterias and you'll have doctors lining up around the corner because that's, again, seeing a size of badges the size of my fist, that kind of scared me because it made me realize if this person was in a situation where he needed to get in one of those doors quickly, how did he know what badge to get to? And that's a macro level of what we're dealing at. If we can do things to make the physician's lives easier, then we've made all of our lives easier. All right, Art, what's on your wish list? Um, well, right now, you know, there, there's, a, there's a big push with um, some of the biomedical devices that are on the floors, uh, particularly associating vitals that are taken that get passed over to the EHR. The integration is actually there, um, but they want to be able to know who took the vitals on that individual. Um, and right now, typing in something into the biomedical device to send that over through the interface. Um, so we start to look at, you know, the biomedical stuff and, and, and much to, to Mitch's point, you know, we're now going into a new building access system that's changing, you know, the card access that we actually use for authentication now. So we're going to a higher frequency chip. So now it'll work for the doors. It'll work for, for, for the EHR, it'll work for the, the particular other technology that we have out there. So it's consolidated a little bit there, but it's still missing anything with the multi-factor part of it. Um, it's just not, not there, generally speaking. So, you know, there's all this turn around, you know, the, the MFA and authentication and knowing who did what. Um, but we've still got these cumbersome processes out there. It, it's got to be a one-stop shopping, one place to go. You use one thing to do what you need to do. Um, and, you know, Mitch's point, the, the bad stuff. I mean, in the Boston area, I have a bunch of traveling physicians. I have moonlighters and everything, you know. They got 16 badges around their neck because they do it at the 16 hospitals. And, you know, what you might use for a badge over at, you know, Mass General, and then you come to Cambridge and you're swiping the badge. Well, you got all these smart badges on there. Which one did you actually authenticate at Cambridge? You got to fish through this. So it starts to get confusing and, and cumbersome at that point in time. So I, I don't know if there's a way around that other than say, don't bring all your badges in at one time. But, um, you know, it, it's a challenge. You know, the technology there that we use in healthcare is so diverse. And 
you know, the abilities of that oftentimes are, are not up to par as well. So you're, you're challenged with that from a security perspective and making an even workflow quick and easy. So you'd have a handful of badges and a pocket full of colored tokens. There you go. <laughs> Steve, what's on your wish list? Strong authentication without passwords. We authentication without passwords. Yes. yes. Passwords are gone. Uh, We've relied on the, the secret, so to speak, in authentication for so long. It's it's old. And I do agree with everyone's comments. When you think about it, this isn't just a healthcare concern, but authentication across the board in so many parts of our life, even you know, things like air travel and things like that. So I do agree it's going to become a combination of factors, just not one or two. And I imagine, like most things, AI and machine learning will fit into this at some point. But short term for this Christmas, if you can tell me I can get rid of passwords, I'll be very happy. All right. I think Sean mentioned the going passwordless. So let's get the, the poll results out there. I was just for time's sake, I'm just going to share them. 55% um, agree that physicians accept that MFA is necessary, and 45% disagree. Uh, Sean, how do those numbers sound to you? That's almost an even split. I guess you see that among your colleagues? We live in a polarized country right now, Anthony. Yeah, yeah, red states, blue states. Actually, that's a red bar and a blue bar that's on the right. poll. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, Let's do our Ask a Co-Panelist. Sean, opportunity for you to ask your co-panelists a question. Great. Well, I have, I have access to three CISOs, so I can't resist asking. We talked earlier about end-user workarounds for security. What are some of the best or worst, or maybe they're both at the same time, stories or anecdotes you have about users working around security measures? And they don't, you can change the names to protect the innocence. I'm sure this happened to a to a friend, not to you, but user workarounds. I love this question, Mitch. Let's go with you first. When I first started off, I had a customer who had a, who had a medical office who needed to log into his system. So he had his two-factor token, username, password, DEA number, and everything else at his medical assistance desk on Post-its <laughs> with full instructions how to use the token. And when he needed something, he'd just ask for it, and they would go get it for him. I the thought that was pretty. I thought, the dreaded yep. post-its. All right, very good, Art. You have a funny story for us. Uh, I don't know if it's well. It might be funny, but it's or it's, sad. It's, <laughs> it's a regular occurrence, you know, as our EHRs get growing uh, bigger, and they become you know, affiliate and, and um, community partner portals, um, what you often find out is in the community doctor's offices, there is what, you know, you know, the post-it note, but they're often in those community offices, they don't want to log into the portal, even though they have an account. So everybody, so all the, you know, the unit secretaries or the, or the secretaries or the nurses at that facility, or that doctor's office have the login credentials to go look at Dr. Parker's 
um, patient stuff that just got treated at Cambridge Hospital because they want to know what the results are, but they don't want to go look at it. They want to print it out, put it somewhere for them so that they can look at it because they're already doing their course of their day in their own clinic EHR. So when they start to use the portals of the referring healthcare system, so in other words, I sent Art over for a CT and Dr. Parker wants the results on that, they go into the portal, but it's not him, it's somebody else. So those are shared credentials across the board, including which at, at times, you know, forces you not to do multi-factor authentication in that portal, you know, your user ID and password, because, you know, the doctors in the office, you know, well, give me the, give me the, you know, the six digit number I need in, in, in 30 seconds, please. That's not going to happen, but you know, that that's a challenge and, and it happens all the time, particularly in the Boston area with the community partners and stuff that we have. Steve. Yeah, I think nothing real ingenious, but I, and not so much at Geisinger, fortunately, but I've seen cases where individuals purposely leave their uh, their badges out on the table when, when they come into work. So if an employee comes in and they forgot theirs, uh, one of their peers readily has theirs available so they can use it. That just was part of their workflow. Yep. All right, very good. I think I'm gonna uh, get some final thoughts here. Um, final uh, word of advice before we let everyone go. Um, let's frame it up by, by uh, again, talking about, we've got the challenges here. We, got, we mentioned usability, time, um, not interrupting you know, clinicians. We've also got the uh, things that must be done and Sean gave some advice on how to present that to physicians and be straight with them. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen effective in that, in communicating. Um, do you, do you, um, I would imagine you agree with Sean about being straight, but any further thoughts on, um, communicating the needs of security to the physicians? We know we're going to work with them, but what's the best way to communicate to physicians about these things that, that have to get done? Art? Yeah, I think, like Sean said, I mean, you, you've got your CMOs uh, that you need to have a conversation with. And, and, and I joke about, the, you know, CIOs becoming physicians these days. But um, if you have a good one in that seat that actually understands and practices at the organization, I think overall, you've got a better position from a security perspective to get the, you know, the, the buy-in and the clout from the, from the other chiefs across the board. I think they're genuinely accepting of it if you communicate it succinctly and and tie it to a business need but one thing that i've actually kind of found a little bit effective uh, in particular is while some things might seem cumbersome and you have a conversation with them and say if you can tie it to the patient and say if if for instance you mess this up as a physician there's a there potentially is a financial um, there potentially is a, um, a, a brand problem. There's a potentially uh, an impact to the patient, not only in their family, if they get a breach or something happens because you didn't do something correctly, their family could be impacted from a credit, you know, credit wise. There's, 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 the, there's the, I'm not going back to CHA. Often they'll change their doctors. Those type of tiebacks to say, you are really protecting the patient. You're treating the patient in essence in one way. You're treating them 
not from a medical perspective, but from a holistic view of I'm protecting their family. I'm making sure that I take care of them physically so that they're around for their family. I'm taking all of that angst out of that. And if you assure them that sometimes it's a little cumbersome, but if you kind of present it a little bit like that, that's how I've actually found it to be a little bit more receptive from the provider perspective. Very good, Mitch. Any final thoughts? I think the most important part is repetition and presence to make sure you're always there to answer questions and that you are constant and clear in how you communicate with your physician community and that you work to make sure that you're always checking, you're always checking up with them and making sure that they are getting what they need. So you're, you're there to help them solve problems. We're all there to help them protect patients. We just need to make sure we're doing it the right way. Steve? I would, communication for sure, but collaboration to me is, is maybe the next step of that. And building relationships with uh, your coworkers who are providers and walking a mile in their shoes and vice versa. Yeah, we have sessions where we get together for an hour, uh, usually a little later in the evening when everybody's kind of winding down. And we'll just talk through some scenarios and what frustrates both sides, so to speak. And it's interesting the perspectives you get and the, the takeaways, because I think it becomes more clear to our uh, our cohorts that some of these changes are not that easy. You cannot just remove a password. Um, for one system without it cascading because you're an integrated system. Uh, again, walking in each other's shoes seems to help each help considerably, at least from my perspective. Sean, your final thoughts uh, for today. Um, I think it, you can put things, I agree with everything that's been said, you can put things to clinicians in terms they understand. If you think about it, like, you know, we understand that certain things are in your control and certain things are not. You just have to explain it to us that way. Understand if a patient has cancer, you know, part of that may be treatable and part of it may not. If they're nauseated, we might be able to give them medicine to help them with that. So, you know, likewise, there are certain things around security. You just can't, you know, there are regulations, there's compliance, there's issues you can't control. But if you hear them and then address issues you can control, you get that credibility and then they work with you, right? And so a lot of it is about establishing that credibility. And don't just go to them when you have a problem, you need to force something down their throats. Walk the floors with them when you don't have to, and then fix problems you can fix. That way they become your allies when you do need to come down hard on certain things like DEA compliance or something else. So it's credibility, it's listening, and then it's affecting everything you can possibly affect for them that you have control over. And tell them when you don't. Very good. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today. Regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our it was a tremendous panel, Steve Dunkel, Art Ream, Mitch Parker, and Dr. Sean Kelly. And I want to thank sponsor, uh, Improvada for sponsoring the event today. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.